You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. lined up today on a topic that we've heard very often and there was a book released with either earlier this year or last year on this topic. Exenberg, I believe it was late last year, called uh, Did God Really Command Genocide? And that's a topic that, that many of us have heard that people will look at the Old Testament God and say, look at the conquest of a promised land of the genocide that went on. What kind of God do you serve who orders the killing of innocent children? Well, that's certainly a 41. And Parker Penn and Matthew Flanagan wrote this book together to answer it. And Matthew Flanagan is here today. So, Dr. Matthew Flanagan is a theologian in Ephesus. He holds a Ph.D. in theology from the University of Ortego and a master's degree of honors in philosophy from the University of Wakado. Matthew currently works as a teaching elder at Takanini Community Church and regularly participates in local and international conferences, panel discussions, and public lectures. Matthew is the author of numerous articles on ethics and philosophy and contributor to several books on apologetics. He recently co-authored Did God Really Command Genocide? Coming to Terms with the Justice of God with Parker Penn. He and his wife Madeline also run the popular blog M&M at mnm.org.nz. So, uh, Dr. Flanagan, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. It's great to be here, Nick. Thank you for coming on. Some people might not have heard of you, so can you tell a little bit about who you are personally and how you got to be doing what you're doing? Sure. Most many people won't have heard of me probably because I'm from New Zealand, which, for those who don't know, it's an island on the other side of the world down in the, in the, in the southern hemisphere. Um, and basically, I I became a Christian probably in my teens, um, and I largely was interested in what this thing Christianity was about. It was kind of like I'd been brought up in a, a society where there'd been a residual Anglicanism up until about age 10, being a colonial British society moving into a more independent sort of phase. And so I, I guess around age 17, I began asking, what is this thing Christianity all about? Began to read, began to look into it, became a Christian, then went to university and did a philosophy degree, um, and engaged ran into sort of serious, sceptical, secular type thought um, head on. And studied there, did reasonably well, and then graduated and then found that there was, really wasn't a lot of work in my part of the world for people with that sort of training. So then I began, or that sort of knowledge or skill set, so then I began writing things online on my website, and it sort of took off from there. People began reading what I wrote, it began to become widely read, People began saying, hey, can you publish on this? Can you can you come to this conference and speak on that more? And so on. And so from, from there, it's kind of picked up. So that's basically, the, the, in a nutshell, the whole story. Yeah. How did this book come about with you and Parker Penn together? Because he really is on the other side of the world from you in Florida. What, what brought yeah, that about? Yeah, he's also, also, also a really big name, yeah. Um, well, what, what happened was I wrote 
a few years ago I was reading, I was sort of thinking about this issue and I'd watched a, online a conference that was the University of Notre Dame on it and I was reading a few books on just on, on the archaeological and historical background of the Old Testament and kind of got some ideas. And so I put a, a short article, two short articles online, probably about 2,000 words each, quite short, just sketching at that stage what, what, what was my thinking at the time, some sort of thoughts or ideas that I had. Um, and that proved to be a very widely read post. And through that, I sort of got in contact with, Paul Copan contacted me, he was writing a book of his, an earlier book that he'd written, wanted to know a little bit about my sources, so I shared that with him. And I was invited on the back of that to a panel discussion at the Society of Biblical Literature in Atlanta. I think it was 2010. And of course, that to me was, was, was really quite amazing because here's the Society of Biblical Literature, probably one of the biggest conferences of, of archaeologists and theologians and biblical scholars in the world. And on, on, on the basis of this blog post, they want me to come and, and, and share my ideas a bit more. So I, I, I sort of did a debate at Auckland University where I tested some of these ideas a little bit. Um, then I went to this, this conference in Atlanta. I was part of a panel discussion with Paul Copan and Richard Hiss and Randall Rouser. And they got a very positive reception from that. And it kind of grew from there. So when I went back to the conference in San Diego to present, I mean in San Francisco the next year to present on a different issue, this time I was sort of more known. Um, publishers approached Paul and said, hey, we want you and that guy that was on the panel with you to write a book. And that's mm -hmm. basically where it came from. So people came to me, really. I didn't go to them with it. Mm -hmm. we, are, we, we did have Paul Copan on the show back on July 19th of last year, talking about his book, Is God a Moral Monster? So anyone interested, go back and look in our archives, and you can find that. And since you mentioned the Society of Biblical Literature, I believe they're going to be having their meeting again in Atlanta this year. Mm. And if anyone's interested... I do plan on attending this year, so if mm, you're a fan of the I, show, yeah. are you going yeah, to be maybe there? I may be there. In the moment, I'm having a discussion about whether or not I'm presenting at it, so we'll see. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, if you come, yeah. I hope we'll get to meet there. Yeah. Uh, let's jump into a book right now. You all start on the deep end in the book with the atheist philosopher Raymond Bradley giving a quote of what he calls the crucial moral principle. Where he says, yeah. it is morally wrong to deliberately and mercilessly slaughter men, women, and children who are innocent of any serious wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. Now, you're really putting yourself in a difficult position right at the start, aren't you? Because most of us, when we hear it, we think, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, who wouldn't agree with that? And it looks like part of your book is say, well, that might not be so. Well, I think the key um, phrase you said there was absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I think all of us would agree with that as a general principle. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's true as a kind of exceptionless absolute principle that can never be violated no matter what the circumstances, no matter how severe the consequences and so on, mm -hmm. is, I think, in contemporary ethics, a controversial principle. And I think that when you sort of think about it too, as Bradley has phrased the principle, it's probably false. I mean, a classic example would be you know, a situation of, of a therapeutic abortion. So you have a therapeutic abortion where a woman's life is in danger. If she gives birth to the child, they, it will kill her and potentially the child as well. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, even people who are very pro-life like myself, um, would say, look, in that kind of situation, there's a case to be made for an abortion. Whether you're killing a innocent person who is not serious of any wrongdoing and you're doing it quite without compunction, you know. You, I mean, you, you, you're doing that sort of thing. And, and there's a long history, in fact, of, of discussion about 
um, before we had medical technology where when a woman is in labour and she's about to give birth um, and something goes wrong and the child's head gets jammed and it's going to kill the woman and potentially kill the baby, there was a long discussion in, in, in Christian and Jewish theology about uh, a procedure where you actually crush the child's head to remove it, um, which of course involves killing the child. Long history of discussion on that. And so I don't think that as an absolute principle, um, it's, it's actually, that, that statement is actually true. That statement is true as a kind of general rule that applies in normal, every, normal sort of circumstances. But the idea that it's never, in, never, there's never any kind of conceivable situation in which that, which a being with the attributes God had could command you to violate that, I think is, is, is not true. So, so I think one of the key things with Bradley is, is he, he uses this phrase absolutely and his argument depends on it being a, a kind of exceptionless rule. And the way he writes, he often has this kind of false dichotomy where he sort of says, look, if it's not absolutely exceptionless principle, then you can violate it for any reason at all. You give credence to Pol Pot and Hitler. And, I mean, that's simply just not the way ethics works. It's simply not true that if you think of you know, extreme circumstances where you might be able to, 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 to kill innocent people, it follows therefore that any circumstance, it just doesn't follow. It's just, I just thought that was quite a, 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 a just uncharacteristically bad lapse on this path and to make that. So I think as the spiritual principle is set up, it's false. It's, it's false, I think, as an absolute principle. Yeah, I, I think it's also interesting. Some people might wonder where you're going, because right after this, your next few chapters in this section are about dealing with what does it mean to say the Bible is the Word of God, and what does role does inerrancy play in all of this, mm-hmm. and what is inerrancy? Why does this matter to a discussion like this? Well, I think it matters because there's a kind of dialectic that goes on that I think gets confused. And, and what I mean by that is the way the kind of conversation goes. So mm-hmm. suppose a, a skeptic comes to you and says to you, you know, God commanded genocide. That, on the face of it, that's a fairly odd thing for a skeptic to say because a skeptic doesn't believe in God. Yeah. So how can, how can he believe God commanded, how can he say God commanded genocide if he doesn't believe God exists? So, so, so what's going on? Is he, is, is he claiming God doesn't exist but he commanded genocide? Well, obviously that would be an uncharitable um, account of the skeptic's argument, right? He's not, he's not arguing that. What he's sort of saying is, you think God commanded genocide, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's assuming your position for the sake of argument and then trying to reduce it to absurdity. Yeah. Now, when you realize that this is what's going on, it's actually quite important because it means the question, therefore, is not what the skeptic thinks. The question, therefore, is what you are committed to thinking in virtue of your religious commitments. In other mm-hmm. words, the idea is that given what you believe, what follows? And that's important. So when you then go to the text and you say the text says this and so on, it's not what the skeptic who opt- whose skeptical views of the Bible thinks the text says. It's what a person who holds the Bible as authoritative is committed to saying. Mm-hmm. So, so what's important is you first have to spell out, well, what actually is it to hold that view? What are you committed to if you hold that view? What sort of position do you have to take? And so on. And I think this is something that gets confused. I find this in dialogue with skeptics. Is skeptics will say, oh, you know, there's this biblical passage and it says this. And then you point out, oh, hang on, look, you've missed this part, you've missed this, you've taken this out of context. And they say, oh, yeah, but I believe that's all fictitious. You know, or maybe you do, but that's not the point. Because um, the point was, as you were saying, that the Bible that I believe in mm. contains these things, and I'm committed to this, and I'm showing you that even if, I, even if you grant those, those, those claims, it doesn't follow, right? And so it's, 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 it's understanding the nature of the argument, I think, the, the way it's set up. You have to be quite clear as to what exactly is the claim. Clearly the skeptic isn't claiming that he thinks God commanded genocide. So the claim is, what does a person who believes in a robust understanding of biblical authority, what are they committed to? What, 
bullets because they have to bite, so to speak. And so what I wanted to do was get clear on what actually is involved in, in, in holding that view and, and, and so on. Because there's a lot of confusion about this. A lot, a lot of skeptics seem to operate with a view of biblical authority or a view of inerrancy, which is just, I don't think anyone holds, except maybe what you might call extreme fundamentalists. I don't like that term, but you know, sometimes I've, I've read things by skeptics and I just scratch my head as to why they think um, biblical authority commits someone to those views. You know, you, you get people who, I saw a discussion recently where they were saying that, you know, Christians who believe in the Bible are committed to believing in dragons because one's meant, because Leviathan is mentioned in the book of Job, you know. And you're kind of scratching your head and saying, so, what? You know, are you suggesting that simply the Bible mentions something that follows that you're, you're committed to believing in it? You know, it, it, the fear mere fact that a text mentions something, is that is that your understanding of biblical inerrancy? Because I wouldn't say that biblical inerrancy means that I must accept everything that is mentioned in scripture, right? Um, and so it's this kind of kind of thing that I think needs to be spelled out. Um, and so that's what I was I was trying to, to get very clear on. What is this nature of, of, of biblical authority? What does it commit us to as a sort of starting point to then explore the rest of the discussion? I think part of it also goes with it seems that here in America, I'm not sure how much it's going on in New Zealand, but here in America we have a whole lot of inerrancy debates going on, and sadly the position of some extreme Christians in this end is the exact same in many ways yeah. as the extreme atheists, it's just they hold different loyalties, and that's that the Bible must be literally the word of God, and what that means is you must interpret the text literally every mm-hmm. single time. In but of course they way. don't, right? But right. They don't, for example, they don't, they don't interpret the Lamb of God to mean that Jesus walks around as a sheep and goes, bah, you know. Yeah. But, so, 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 so the reality is that they don't do that, um, and 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 so that's generally a, a kind of club that's used. Actually, in New Zealand, we don't have those debates so much. The problem is, is that of course North American culture is very dominant internationally. So what I find in New Zealand is a lot of skeptics, and, and of course New Zealand's a much more secular culture than the US. So a lot of people are not brought up in in in, in the deep south, so to speak, um, in New Zealand. And so what you find in, in in New Zealand is a lot of people react to a caricature they have of American believers mm-hmm. and project that upon believers in, in places like the UK and New Zealand, which is an interesting phenomenon. The inerrancy debate doesn't play such a big... I mean, we have a belief in biblical authority, but we don't have this kind of trying to finely tune exactly what inerrancy means or have these, these sort of debates about mm-hmm. you know, whether a particular passage in Matthew about people rising from the grave is supposed to be historical or not. You know, that just wouldn't even appear on the radar. Um, yeah, I think I know, you know a little bit about that, that debate. <laughs> yeah, I think you might do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, so, yeah but, but, but the problem is, is, is my job as an apologist is I have to speak to... I mean, I have, there's a sense of what I'm doing is international because I'm doing it online, um, so I have a lot of American readers, but I also have to speak to the kind of conception that is common in the public realm, even if it's not particularly accurate to the nuances of, you know, the difference between British evangelicalism and American evangelicalism and how those two streams of evangelicalism affect New Zealand, which is quite unique to the way it affects other parts of the world. You know, skeptics aren't that discerning, right? They just react to what they see as American evangelicalism that many of them have never experienced firsthand except from watching a program like The West Wing or something like that, right? Um, And so that's part of the, 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 the... from my context that I have to have to respond to. Now, when you get into the text that, for sake of argument, we call the genocide text at yeah. this point, now, you do make the case that they are hyperbolic in nature, which means they are not to be read in a wooden literal sense. Now, let's 
not move away from inerrancy yet. Some people might say, oh, you're you're really denying inerrancy at this point, or you're, you're trying to make the case nicer because you can't really handle the four biblical implications of what's going on. Yeah, I see you laughing here. What, what's your response to that? Well, firstly, it's a fallacy, right? So what you're doing is you're responding to, not responding to the argument I made, but you're projecting certain motives on me right. and then dismissing the motives and ignoring the case that I made. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first point I was going to make about this. You know, I gave reasons in my book why I think that. So for someone to turn around and say, oh, you, your reasons are because you can't handle it. Well, that, that's not the reasons I put in the book, right? Um, and so what you've, what you've done is you've ignored what I've said and you've projected right. onto me. And so that's, that's just a, a fallacious way of reasoning. The other thing is, is about inerrancy too, is that you know, there's a kind of mistake that people sometimes make where they think if something is hyperbolic, you're saying that it's false. You're, what, you're not doing that. What you're pointing out is that the kind of speech act that's performed by hyperbolic language is different um, to the kind of speech act that is performed when you take a text literally. So when I take a te- when I affirm a text literally, I'm sort of affirming exactly what the words you know I utter in their literal English sense mean. Mm-hmm. When I speak hyperbolically, I'm using those words to affirm something slightly different. Mm-hmm. You know, we do this all the time. But the rhetorical question, when I ask a rhetorical question, the grammar of my of my words is a question, but what I'm actually doing is asserting something. You know, when I'm sarcastic, um, I often am asserting the opposite of what I'm saying. <laughs> you know, so I'll say, I'll say, oh yeah, that was a really, really good talk, right? Um, the words are, that was a really, really good talk, but what I've actually said it was, it was a lousy talk, right? Um, and and so, so it's just assuming that. What is, the, what is the author or authors actually saying with these texts? And that's the point. When you say it's hyperbolic, the point you're making is that they're trying to say something different from what the sort of words in their literal meaning signify. And so you're not denying that what the author is saying is true. Mm-hmm. You're trying to clarify what it is exactly the author is saying. So there's this kind of sense in which people are saying, oh, well, look, if you don't think the author said what I said, then you're denying inerrancy. No. I'll be denying inerrancy if I denied what the author said was true. Mm-hmm. Right. I'd be denying inerrancy if I said that what the author is trying to teach the point he's trying to convey is false. That would be denying an inerrancy. Um, but, but being careful about looking at the text and trying to work out what he's actually saying is just trying to interpret him. It's trying to, to, to understand him. That's a different question, I think. And I think this is confused all the time in the, in the discussion. People seem to, when they're discussing this issue, particularly in the North American context, confuse, um, you know, determining what the author was saying, a debate about that, as a debate about whether what the author said is true. And then, of course, there's also the question of once you determine what the author has said, how do you apply that? And this comes up in all kinds of other debates about, you know, um, you know, sometimes you'll hear skeptics say things like, oh, you know, you, 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 know, you don't believe the Bible's true because you don't, you know, think women should have headscarves in church. Or, or the earth is 6,000 uh, years old. Yeah, well, you know, um, but, you know, the, 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 issue with, the issue with headscarves is everybody accepts that Paul said to the woman in Corinth, they should cover their heads, right? And there's no debate about that was what he was saying or something like that, right? Exactly what he was mm-hmm. saying. But, but the question is, how do we apply that today? Given that Paul said that to the Corinthians and he thought the Corinthians should do that, what does that mean for us in our community, right? right. That's, an, that's an issue of applying Paul's teaching. It's yeah. not an issue of denying Paul's teaching, right? It's an issue of saying, like, we know what Paul thought. How do we apply that today? How do we faithfully get the point, the teaching he was making, and apply it in a circumstance that's similar in some respects and different than others? And that's, a, that's an issue of ethics and application. Yeah. And these things get confused in this discussion, right? Yeah. 
Well, let's go and look at these texts here because in fact, we have several texts in the Bible mm-hmm. that speak about either of a conquest of a, of a land of Canaan or perhaps a passage like First Samuel 15 talking about the conquest of the Amalekites. Mm-hmm. Like these clearly say destroy everyone, men, women, and children. I mean, this is what the text clearly says. <laughs> so how right. can we say the text is saying anything else besides that? Well, that's what non-literal language all it does, right? It does all the time, right? It clearly uses words in a particular language that if you interpret it literally would mean something different to what, you, what it actually means. I mean, that, that, that's true of any... If I, said, if I said to you, look, I watched the rugby game and the, the All Blacks just slaughtered the um, English in the rugby, which happens quite regularly, by the way. Um, but <laughs> if, I, if, I, if I said that, um, I clearly said the All Blacks slaughtered the English, right? If you, the clear, collision of the clear words came out of my mouth, right? But no one would interpret me as therefore saying that I believe that the All Blacks went onto the, the rugby field at Twickenham and pulled out a machine gun and shot everybody, right? Right. Um, that wouldn't. That wouldn't. Right. So, 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 it's not enough to just preface the words with with your phrase clearly, and 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 commit it. What you have to do is you have to look at the context. And the, the problem is, is, is as I point out in, in the book, there are there are a couple of lines that I make here. One is is that if you read them that way, the texts immediately commit the author to fairly blatant contradictions. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of principle in, 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 in interpreting that exists that you don't attribute a blatant stupid contradiction to an author um, without a good reason. You know, generally, one of, the, one of the ways we interpret when a person is speaking a little bit differently or, or non-literally is precisely um, by the fact that if we, if we took them literally, we could, they'd be saying something that, that, just, that we just don't think they would say if they were a sensible person. You know? So one of the reasons when I say, you know, when, I, when you see me in a talk and I'm rolling my eyes and I go, oh, gosh, you know, and then I get out and go, oh, that was a really good talk, you know. Um, one of the reasons you, you, you take me as being sarcastic is, is the context suggests that I don't actually think that, right? Yeah. Context suggests I've been wrong my eyes, that my body language suggests that I think this was a bad talk. So obviously I must be using those words a different way. And so I, and then of course sarcasm fits because I use a particular indentation or tone of voice. And when people in my culture use that kind of indentation tone in my voice, they're speaking sarcastically. Yeah. And that's the same kind of analysis I, I give on the text. You know, in, in the book, in books like. First Samuel 15 and in, in, in the book of Joshua there are a series of passages where it says they went in and they totally killed everyone that breathed you know and it repeats these same kinds of buzz phrases over and over again you know they left no survivors they left nothing that breathed they killed everyone they left no survivors it's almost repetitive almost um, rhythmic yeah. in the way it does it and then it goes on in the next few chapters to assume that these people weren't wiped out right the next few chapters it talks about how they it talks about how this land that they've just conquered it all, Joshua gives it to them in their inheritance. And then when it talks about them taking up the inheritance that Joshua's given them, it's the land full of Canaanites, right? Yeah. And they have to fight and they have to drive them out. And the same thing happens with the Amalekites. You know, after it said this about the Amalekites, later on in the narrative, they're still around fighting battles and what have you. So, so if you take the texts, if you take this, this text literally, you've got this problem. The author's affirming one thing and then assuming that he's affirming the opposite later on. Mm-hmm. And then the other line of argument I use is I point out that in this particular culture, lack texts of this sort, this sort of language is widely used hyperbolically, right? Yeah. So I use the same kind of, you know, I, I document that from various different um, ancient Near Eastern war texts, and I point out that there are clear that Joshua and these texts are using the same kinds of um, literary tropes. You know, there's an, you can compare them and find the same kind of literary tropes that are widely used. 
And so what I'm doing there is just using the same analogy that I just gave you with sarcasm, right? You know, when I speak sarcastically, you know that the context suggests that I actually didn't like this talk, and I'm using it with a particular indentation, which people in my culture use to convey sarcasm. Um, and that's the same thing you see in the text here. You know, these people are using these, these words in a context where they don't seem to be committed to the claim that these were taken literally. And they're using it using a kind of literary style of writing, which we know in that culture was hyperbolic. So I think if you use the standard kind of methods we use on, 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 on language and talk communication generally, it's not clearly being asserted literally that, that these people wiped out every single man, woman, child. You know, um, these, these, these kinds of phrases seem to be, there seems to be reasonably compelling evidence that these kinds of phrases are um, used as a, a kind of hyperbolic trope. You know? yeah. And in fact, if you look at my book, I don't just point this out with Joshua, I point out that these phrases are used throughout Scripture. Yeah. Um, and frequently when they're used throughout Scripture, you see this. They, in fact, they're, they're almost always, not always, mm -hmm. but almost always um, when you see these kinds of language, shortly later, the, the people are still alive. At least not that entirely wiped out, right? You know, even in little, I mean, I, I find I, there's, there's, you know, little incidental uses of this language in certain places. And, and, and so when you really go into the text and you look at this, you find this is a common um, way the biblical authors express themselves. They express themselves hyperbolically. And I think, I think hyperbolic, hyperbole is actually very common in the Old Testament. I think mm. it's, it's widely hyperbolic. And one of the things we need to get our head around is that this is a, a, not a culture that is literate in the same way we are. You know, we mm. all can read we all communicate with the written word. Um, this is a culture where an elite pe group of people can read, and most people took orally. You know, a lot of these texts are, 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 are oral-based. They're going to be used, read out to people, they're going to be used to, to communicate with people. And when you speak orally, you do use a lot of rhetorical techniques that you don't use in writing. Um, you know, so, yeah. Now, if anyone's wondering about the kind of world that Dr. Flanagan's talking about, I do recommend going back to, I believe it was October of 2013 where I interviewed Brent Sandy on the lost world of scripture. He goes into great detail on the world, world of the Bible. But now when we look at these texts though and we see the destruction going on, we also should probably ask, I mean, were the Canaanites really innocent? I mean, what was Canaanite culture really like? I mean, were these people who just, you know, they, they might have gotten a few things wrong, but it's not like they were really bad people, you know, they were just good people trying to make it in the world. What were they really like? Well, I think the, I think the question is, is, is there is that you've got to, I mean, the way Raymond Bradley sets it up, he talks about these people are innocent of any wrongdoing. And I, I went through in the in the book and I point out that lots of um, skeptics make this kind of point. So, so Peter Millikan from Oxford talks about the only thing that they did was, you know, live in the wrong place, you know, and, and, and you know, various others, Louis and, you know, various other um, philosophers made the same sort of thing. And I think the, the question I'm really interested in there, remember, remember the question we're asking is we're saying, what is a person who takes these texts as authoritative committed to? So the question is, when we look at the biblical narrative, um, what is the context in which this occurs? Does this occur in a context where these people are, you know, innocent of any wrongdoing? Now, now you've got to be a bit careful here is, is, is you can use words generally without using them to refer to every single individual. So, so there's a kind of phenomenon in language when I can say, well, look, um, 
you can, I might say, well, you know, French people are really arrogant. <laughs> now, I don't mean by that that every single French person is arrogant. I mean there's a kind of general tendency amongst French people to be arrogant. Now, whether that's true or false is another question, right? But, you know, or people sometimes say, you know, New Zealanders are good at rugby. Now, it wouldn't be true that every single New Zealander is good at rugby, but it is true as a general cultural statement that that's one area that New Zealanders tend to excel in, right? Um, and it's the same kind of, it's the same kind of thing I think is going on here. So if you look at in the text, you'll find that this, this command occurs, doesn't occur in isolation. There's a long sort of backstory. And so firstly, there's this land that's given to Abraham for a certain purpose, to bring about blessing to the entire world, to be this, this sort of platform from which a, 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 something can occur which will reverse the curse of Babel, right? Yeah. And so this land is given to Abraham. It's given to him. But then he's told, look, you can't gain immediate occupation of the land because there are people living here. Um, so I'm going to, you have to wait 400 years until the sin of the Canaanites has reached its full measure. So that the picture in Scripture is this land is given to Abraham. These people are essentially trespassing. But God doesn't allow him to evict them. He says, you know, you've got these people, you know, you've got to share the land with them um, until, they, until their culture gets really bad, basically, and then you can evict them. Um, and you actually see this in the Genesis narrative, you know, they, Abraham has reasonably good relationships with the Canaanite population. When um, his descendants raid a Canaanite town over the whole issue of, you know, them seducing one of their daughters and this sort of stuff, it's condemned, yeah. um, this sort of thing. And so the, the narrative that occurs in, in the book of, you know, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Leviticus and what have you, is you know, several generations later when Israel are basically returning as refugees. They've, they've got no land. They can't live in Egypt because they've been, you know, put to death and, and slaves there and what have you. They need this land. They're refugees. They're coming in, and this culture has reached a point where it's this pervasive human sacrifice going on, pervasive incestuous kind of rituals. It's got a religious system which is not just, a, you know, not the kind of paganism that you might see practiced in the West today, where it's you know going out and 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 environments. You know, it involves human sacrifice. Involves you know ritual incest. Involves bestiality, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's quite barbaric. And this is an ingrained religious practice in this culture. And Israel are a tiny minority who, if they live in this culture, will become assimilated to it. And so that's the kind of picture you've got. So these people need this land to achieve this great purpose. It belongs to them. The descendants who are there have ingrained in their culture criminal practices, which they've been engaging in for hundreds of years. And Israel... If they just come in the land and coexist with them, they will be assimilated and adopt these practices themselves. Right. Now, and and so that doesn't prove that every single individual Canaanite was guilty. Obviously, there were Canaanite children and things like that, and I don't say that in the book. But it does suggest that the picture that skeptics have painted is not entirely accurate to the text. Right. This is not a situation where there's just these totally innocent, nice people who are just you know doing absolutely nothing but happening to live on on on, on some land that Israel wanted. It's 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 a, it's a much more complicated, nuanced situation like that. Um, and so that's what I try and spell out in the text, is that there is, there, there's, often a, there's often a moral problem in the text, but what bothers me a lot is the way skeptics exaggerate it. And, and, and the skeptics have this tendency to, sort of ex to read something in the text and then totally exaggerate it. And then when you point out they've exaggerated, they say, oh, it doesn't matter because it's still, I still perceive a problem. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I just disagree with that. I don't think you have the right to charge someone with you know, if, you, if you're concerned that your neighbour has committed assault, that you can therefore accuse them of murder, you know, um, which is the kind of logic they're using there, you know. We, we need to be clear on what the text mm -hmm. says first, and then we need to ask, 
what this commits us to and what we have to respond to and not respond to, right? Mm. And so that, that first part of the book is really to just get clear on what these narratives say and, and to contrast it with what skeptics say it says. Yeah, I, I also liked how in this part of the book you said that it's not always a command to destroy the enemy. Sometimes you're supposed to drive out the enemy. What does that really mean and how would how would your lifestyle be affected in the ancient world if you were driven out of where you live? Well, if you think about what the problem is, the problem is that Israel, if they live in this land and coexist with the Canaanites, um, they will adopt these practices, right? And, and so this is land that belongs to Israel. The problem is the Canaanites are living on Israel's land, right? Right. They've been living there for a long period of time, trespassing on their land, engaging in criminal activity. And Israel can't live here without adopting those practices because of their size, right? So the problem is that they're in the land alongside these people. That's the problem. What, was, what God wants is them not to be there. Okay, once the Israelites to come in, Israelites will live in this land, and the people who are engaged in these practices to not be there, right? right. Um, and so if you look at the, the text, most times, and this is the interesting thing, it's about a three-to-one count when, when, when it refers to the Canaanites. It's about three-to-one count. Three times it will say, drive them out, or they will be driven out, or I will drive them out before you, frequently in fact. Um, and then the, 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 the minority of texts have destroyed them. So the picture is, is of them going into these... What I think the picture is, is when you understand the kind of way this hyperbolic language is used, is they come into the land, and if you read Joshua carefully, they don't come in and conquer the whole land in one fell swoop. You know, there's a lot of bravado language. But if you actually look at what happens, they come in, they set up camp um, in a particular part called Gilgal, uh-huh. and then they carry on out raids against various towns and it says they return to their camp. When they carry out these raids, the people get up and they flee and they leave, right? And they kill some of the people that don't get clear, the others flee off and leave, and then they go back to their base camp and then these areas get repopulated and then they do this again. And basically what, what happens is grad, as basically, the, the picture is that these are the people who are staying, you hear the picture in, 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 in um, you hear the picture in, in the story of Jericho about how many people are leaving because they realize Israelites are coming. The point is to drive them out, right? Right. And, 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 and the killing is being initiated against people who are staying or not leaving or are hanging around after this. And in fact, one of the, um, if you look at the two texts where it talks about you know, wiping them out, one of them is in, in Deuteronomy 7, and it talks about, after I have driven them out before you, you know, you've come in, and I have driven them out before you, um, you shall kill them all, you know. So the picture is, they're gone, and then it says, you know, you shall um, totally destroy them, destroy their idols, destroy their things, you know, this sort of thing, show them no mercy. But it's in the context where God says he's driven them out. Mm-hmm. So, so, so it must it can't be referring to all of them, right? right? And then it goes on later to say, I will drive them out slowly, little by little. So the picture is God saying, saying look, we're not driven them all out, do this. The other one, of course, is in Deuteronomy 20, which is a situation of a siege. Right, so this is a situation where um, there is a, a, a walled city or a fortress um, of some sort, and, and, and it's saying, you know, once you've taken this fortress, the, the general principle is don't kill combatants in this particular situation, you can. So then again, that's not a, a typical everyday battle situation. That's a situation where, you know, people have, have kind of set up camp and are staying. So the picture, if you want to be look at the text coherently, seems to be that the, the, the goal is for God to gradually drive these people out. Um, some of it by natural means, some of it just they'll naturally leave before they get there. And then the, 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 the kind of people who stick around, the survivors or what have you, they're not to take prisons. That's the kind of picture. They're not to, yeah. to kind of coexist with these people like it was a normal battle where you win 
um, and then you, you live amongst these people and they become your allies and you intermarry with them and what have you, right? That's the, that's the problem is to avoid that. So, so that's the kind of fiction. Now, that does involve killing of non-combatants, and that's a moral problem, which we go on to talk about in our, in our book. But it's not the picture of this genocidal slaughter where you go out and you basically say, okay, here's an ethnic group. Let's wipe it out. Let's make sure that nobody from this ethnic group survives. Let's kill every single man, woman, and child there is and, and, and saying that that's what they did, because that's actually not the picture of the text when you read that, but what the text holds says. What happens is skeptics take certain passages out of the narrative, pull them out, throw them onto Freethinker websites, and, and, and then say, hey, look, this is literal language, and the context doesn't support that, and the bigger picture doesn't support that. And so that's what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make is, firstly, the picture that you've been sold often is not accurate to what the text says. Here's what it says, and then you have to deal with the moral issues. Yeah, but Dr. Flanagan, you talked about the killing of non-combatants that sometimes would have happened. I mean, you're a father, and you could understand if someone came to put you to death for something wrong that you mm-hmm. did. But why would, should anyone put your child to death for what you've done? And aren't these innocent children, and if they're children, couldn't it be Israel to just, you know, assimilated them into their culture or taken them in, provided for them? I mean, couldn't an omnipotent God do something better than just killing them? Okay, well, a couple of, there are a couple of things in there that, are, that, I, that I would address. I mean, there's lots, lots in that, that, that quote that I would address. Firstly, it's, it's always difficult to address this topic in a way that doesn't sound clinical, and, and you know, we're talking about it as an ethical issue, and, and a, a person right. who's a father isn't going isn't to view it that way, right? Um, but the first thing I would say, one, one, one thing you said towards the end there is that an omnipotent God could do something better. Yeah, that's true. The problem is, is that that's true with almost anything you can say, right? So right. If, you, if you're talking about God, let's say we say, okay, God commands you to love your neighbor. Well, God could do better than that. God could just make it not necessary for me to love my neighbor. God could just show that person that loves himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if God commands you not to, um, you know, God commands us to set up court systems where, let's say, rapists and murderers uh, get a due process and uh, are given some kind of you know, punishment for their crimes. We know God. God could just set up His own court, and He wouldn't wouldn't need us. God could capture those people. You know. So, so I think once you once you realise that the God of Scripture hasn't done everything Himself, the God of Scripture hasn't solved every single problem. He's He's left human beings to administer justice and act morally in a world that He's set up where there are various problems. And once you realise that, then I think that kind of that kind of question goes by the way. So it's a different question. It's just a question of the problem of evil in general. Um, which is a, a different kind of question. Here we're talking about if you believe in God and you accept the Scripture as the Word of God, and and you know you, you, we're taking that position and running with it, um, what, what you're permitted to. So 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 you know, and then, so I mention this in the text. You know, I say you know, if, if you say well God could have done better, therefore he wouldn't command us. You're committed to saying God wouldn't command us to not murder because God can do better. He could just protect every 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 person on the street who's murdered. Why right? you could send an angel in and and protect them. You know, if God says don't. Um, you don't assault people. He could do better than that. He could just make sure that no assaults occur, right? You know? right. So, so, so I think, I think, I think there you're just punting to the problem of evil, this, this, this standard argument against the existence of God, which is a different discussion. Right. The other point you raised was about putting children to death for crimes their parents committed. And I agree with you. I think it would be wrong to put a child to death as punishment for a crime the parents committed. You know, part of justice requires that you punish the perpetrator, not an innocent third party. Um, but I don't think the text is saying that they're being executed for the crimes of their parents. I mean, the fact that they kill non-combatants doesn't mean they've been killed as a punishment for some kind of crime, right? right. You can kill non-combatants for, for reasons other than that. So, 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 so then it reduces to the question, can there ever be situations um, where a loving and just God might 
could allow the killing of non-combatants. Could be ever be greater goods, if you like, um, where they could happen. Right? And I, I, I don't rule that out. I, I, I can think of at least hypothetically situations like that. Now, in the book, I make the point that I don't believe, as a general rule, it's, it's right, right to kill non-combatants. In fact, I, I take a line that I, I'm inclined to think that, that that prohibition is what I call practically absolute. In other words. I don't think we as humans should sit there and carve out exceptions in our own mind and try and work out rules for exceptions and what have you, because we'll probably just create carnage and rationalisation and a whole lot of bad stuff. But I think that in principle, um, it's not inconceivable to me that there might be cases where um, there are greater goods that can be achieved by by that occurring. I mean, I mentioned the, the case earlier of, of the therapeutic abortion. You know, I can think of cases a bit like that. Um, now. The, 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 the way you did the case was personalised and said, well, you know, if I was a father, how would I feel? Well, if I was a father and someone killed my child, I'd feel absolutely terrible and awful and be angry and enraged and what have you. Um, but that's one of the reasons we don't allow parents to sit on jury trials of, of, of victims when their, their kids have been killed, right? Um, you know, when we make these kinds of moral questions about what is the correct thing to do from an, from an impartial perspective, we tend to abstract out the fact that, you know, if I'm personally committed and I'm really committed to this particular person, I'm likely to make a, a decision that, that's somehow biased there, you know. Mm. Um, what I would want a rapist to get if they raped my daughter um, is not necessarily what a jury of impartial 12 people would want. Right. If my, you know, who has examined all the evidence and looked at all the factors and what have you, you know. Um, and, and so there can be a danger, I mean, there can be, I think, a problem about posing the moral question in terms of how would you feel if you were the aggravated party but it, that's not really the moral question the moral question is okay is this are there, is this something that a loving and just God could command that's really the question that I want to address in the text and what I argue with the text is there's something I think fairly modest is I suggest that if there are greater goods involved that it's possible that there could be exceptions made for a general rule against killing non-combatants there's a general rule that, that says you don't kill non-combatants but there might be rare cases where there's some greater evil avoided or, or, or some greater good achieved if um, God grants particular people an exception to that rule at a particular point in time. And so I think that's, that's theoretically possible. Um, and in fact, a lot of ethicists today think that that's actual. You know, um, there's a lot of discussion in the literature about this, this thing called supreme emergency, which are cases where the, 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 where the idea is that the, the, the threat you face is so dire um, or the situation you face is such an emergency that the kind of normal moral rules are suspended. Now, I don't go that far in the text because I think it's dangerous to give politicians and statesmen that kind of tool and say, oh, look, don't do this, except in these cases of extreme emergency, because every political crisis is going to be seen as extreme emergency. Yeah. But, but the point is, is, it seems in principle to me that there can be cases, that there, it doesn't seem totally out of whack to me that a, 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 an honesty and loving and just God could conceive of, could, could be aware of cases like that and could make exceptions. And so the question is, if we have evidence that he has, then we should take that, we shouldn't be totally dismissive of that. We need to say, well, look, you know, if it's possible that God could do this, then that means that if we have, if the balance of evidence suggests that he has, then we, we can't rule it out because on, 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 on the basis, you know, that, oh, God would never command this because we've admitted it's theoretically possible. Clearly, 